Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I am your host, Kay Simone, and please forgive my voice. It is the middle of the night. My spirit said record, so that's what the fuck I'm going to do. Um, but I'm going to start this off by saying that the suffering of our people can and has been impacting our mental health. I will be discussing torture and death on this episode, so if you would like to skip, I completely understand Enslaved men and women were tortured and murdered by a racist, entitled white woman. And she has been the face of what people think is a ghost story. Now, these people have names and were more than just slaves. Delphine Lollery has gotten screen time in popular TV shows and documentaries. This happens in books and magazines. And it is the topic of ghost tours in New Orleans. Bon, Florence, Juliet, Jules... Leontine, Celestine, Louise, Louis, Lebon, and Edouard, Nancy, Marianne, Maria, Sally, Nicholas, and Rose all disappeared and there were there was no explanation that was given. And there are more deaths during this time, and the majority of these people were young and healthy. Their funeral records reside with the St. Louis Cathedral. These were real people. Um, this isn't a ghost story. This actually happened. And I want to thank whoever decides to tune in. But please do some self-care after because, as we know, the world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it. Before I dive into this episode, I just want to say I have fucking missed y'all. Like, oof, I wish I, I could look y'all in the face, see how y'all are doing. You know, something that my mother would say when it had been a minute since she seen me, she'd be like, let me see your face <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, I know it's been a couple weeks since my last episode. I had to go on back to corporate America because one thing's for sure and two things are for certain. Those bills do not stop coming. But let me tell you one, monkey don't stop no damn show. So I've gotten my shit together and I'm back to bring you this episode on the mansion at 1140 Royal Street. I'm going to try and get out a follow up episode with a tour guide who was uh, born and raised in New Orleans. Uh, so hopefully we'll have a chance to have a discussion after I have published this episode. I want to thank everyone who has left me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast, and I'll be shouting out reviews at the end of the episode. So I'm going to start this off by telling y'all the popular story surrounding 1140 Royal Street, and then I'm going to try and steer us closer to what is more accurate based on records and research. So every telling of this story starts the same. A fire broke out at 1140 Royal Street in New Orleans, Louisiana, on April 10th, 1834. This fire started in the kitchen and quickly began to spread to other parts of the mansion. The police and the fire marshal, they show up, you know, try to provide assistance. And to their surprise, the LaLaurie family are not too concerned with the preservation of their home or the enslaved people who were trapped inside. They're kind of outside, you know, they're trying to grab up their prized possessions, like their jewels and furniture. And a crowd begins to form and people begin to realize that 
they're not trying to give up the keys to get inside and save these people who are stuck inside of this burning mansion. So the man of the house gives them attitude and basically tells them to mind their business. And with the growing crowd made up of uh, officials and locals, they're left with no other choice but to break down the doors. Upon entry, they find a cook, a 70-year-old woman chained to the stove. Now, later on, she admits that she set the house on fire on purpose to end the suffering. She was terrified of being punished and... Yeah, she she said, fuck this. She said, yeah, this has got to end. See, the slaves that went upstairs, they never came back down. Now, the legend says that the enslaved people were found in what has been described as a torture chamber. They had been beaten, had bruising, and were bloody. Some of them had their eyes gouged out, skin flayed, and mouths filled with feces and sewn shut. Other reports claim that one woman resembled the likeness of a crab because her bones had been broken and reset in awkward angles. Another report said a woman was wrapped in human intestines. Some of their skulls had holes in them. Wooden spoons sat nearby so their brains could be stirred. Corpses were located behind locked doors and were so badly mutilated that they were unrecognizable. Some stories say that there was a handful of bodies that had been discovered other reports say that it was upward of 100 bodies. After the discovery of these torture rooms, the surviving slaves were brought to something similar like a town square. The primary focus of this was to get them away from the Lollary family and get them to safety, but they also kind of made a spectacle of these poor people who had suffered such severe brutality. Now, at one point, as the crowd begins to form to look at these enslaved people who have these severe wounds, they, they kind of get pissed off. So imagine it is 1834 and you have disgusted white folk because of how brutal you have been treating your enslaved people. So at this point, Delphine is immediately looked at as a person of interest as far as torturing her slaves. And the legend says that when they realized that the Lollaries escaped justice, they went into a rage and tore the remaining parts of the mansion down. When they were done, there were a few walls that remained. So the house that we see now is not the original home where everything took place. Delphine and her family moved to Paris and the victims never got justice. So this story has been told countless times and each time it's told, it gets more dark and gruesome. And I don't want to take a deep dive when it comes to Delphine because my entire goal is to put her behind the victims here. So as far as my research, I wanna point out that the Lollaries didn't keep any journals. So information that I have found is based off of letters from family and friends I got court records along with birth and death information from archives. And still this information is just a scoop because a lot of records have mysteriously disappeared. Luckily for me, I was able to locate a book with the help of another podcast that covered this case. So I wanna, I wanna take a second to plug the Morbid Curiosity podcast. Now I listened long enough just to catch some info, use further research because they really 
their goal wasn't to dramatize this ghost story like they really wanted to get closer to the facts of the shit that really happened and the book that i found through them is called madame lalaurie mistress of the haunted house and this book is by carol merrill long and she really took time to compile information from the sources i mentioned earlier like letters and archived records now as far as the podcast the morbid curiosity podcast um, I just want to plug them, like, no, they're not sponsoring my episode. I just appreciate good research, and I know y'all do too. And if y'all have interest in Elizabeth Bathory or other morbid facts in history, I do suggest that you, you know, look them up. And also, if you want more information about Delphine, like, the history, a true deep dive, you should check out this book because it is good and very informative. So I'm going to start this off by telling y'all how this fucked up ass family got here to begin with. And I'm not going to take too much time. I'm going to keep it real cute and short. Just a little bit of information. So Delphine's legal surname was McCarty. Her lineage originated in Ireland. And honestly, they should have stayed the fuck where they were at. Um, but it is said that an earlier family member named McCarthy McTeague ended up in France because he was running from political and religious tyranny that was brought on by England's monarchs. So this man settles in the French province of Languedoc and he enters the military service for the French king. Delphine's grandfather, Bartholomew Daniel, is a descendant of, the Maca of uh, McCarthy McTeague and he moved to Louisiana in its early colonial years. Over time, the family surname changed to McCarty. So when the McCarty's arrived to New Orleans, it was around 1730. And the population was around 4,800. And 3,569 of that population were enslaved Africans, indigenous Indians, and free African Americans. And lately, I've been seeing this whole topic on slavery and why didn't slaves fight back and you you look at the comparison between 4,800 3,569 of that are enslaved people so you, you I'm pretty sure you questioning like what the fuck was going on that they didn't fight back but I'm gonna get to that in a second so the area was swampy and there wasn't much going on outside of some shacks I don't know it sounds real Mm -mm, it don't sound too cute to me. So Delphine's grandfather, Bartholomew Daniel de McCarty, and his wife, Francois Helen, they had 11 kids, and one of them was Delphine's dad, Louis Bartholomew. So there are records of the family's existence in the Spanish census um, between like 1763 and 1770. And this proves that Delphine's grandfather lived with his wife, kids, uh, and enslaved people on about 170, 172 acres of land. So honestly, this family was thriving and they were under the Spanish regime and they still kept their French customs. So now we can kind of see how they set their roots in New Orleans. So fast forward to 1776, Marie's father, Louis Bartholomew, married Marine Jeanne. And she was the widow of a man named Charles Leconte. And when Charles died, he left a fortune for his wife. So when she married Louis Bartholomew, she brought them coins with her. 
So Marie, De Marie Delphine was born on March 19, 1787 to Louis Bartholomew de Macarty and his wife Marie. Delphine was one of five children and they were living the good life. I mean, what we know now, basically based on letters and records that haven't been lost. Um, there's letters from a family member and he describes Delphine's mother as vivacious and frolicsome. The family was big on parties and they sounded kind of rowdy because uh, in some of these letters, he describes them as loud, mentioning the family argued over who would control the card tables. I don't know. They sound those thugs. They sound real, mm -mm, sound real ghetto to me. But it is important to note that the world around them was in shambles, y'all. So in 1771... Delphine's uncle by marriage was murdered by his slaves. Tea time. So I'm going to tell you about these two slaves because, I mean, we got enslaved people fighting for liberation and fighting for their fucking rights. So I'm not too worried about the man who was murdered. I mean, play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. But the Spanish governor conducted an investigation and the accused two slaves... Timba and Merleton um, were accused of the murder. And Timba and Merleton, they confessed after being tortured on the rack. So this definitely could have been a false confession just to stop the torture. And a quote from the book I got my info from describes their execution. So trigger warning. They were sentenced to be dragged from the tail of a pack horse with a halter tied to the neck, feet, and hands the town crier to go before announcing the crime they have committed. They must pass through the accustomed streets to the gallows where they will be hanged until dead. A further indignity was reserved for Timba, whose body was to remain on the gibbet until consumed. His hands were to be cut off and nailed up on the public road. Three other slaves, including Timba's woman, Mariana, were convicted as accomplices to the Libretan murder. They received 100 to 200 lashes. Their ears were cut off and one man was tarred and feathered and mounted on a pack beast. So I really think that as far as these conversations on what black folk didn't do or what they did do, I feel like they're y'all need to be more conscious of the things y'all say because imagine watching someone get 100 to 200 lashes or watching someone get tortured by being tarred and feathered or being hung. So it was a lot of shit going on, but I wanna point out that these tensions were high and Delphine was four years old. There was this huge slave revolt in St. Domingue, which started in 1791 and lasted upward 13 years, resulting in the creation of the Republic of Haiti. In 1795, a group of slaves plotted another revolt and eventually were caught. So 57 enslaved people and the local white men were convicted. 31 of them were flogged and sentenced to hard labor. The three white men were deported and also sentenced to hard labor. And 23 slaves were hung and their severed neck and their severed heads were placed on spikes along the Mississippi River from Point Coupe to New Orleans. I want to also point out that if you travel to New Orleans, a history tour, it could possibly be beneficial for you. Every time I go, I have to go on one of these tours. I mean, New Orleans today is 
full of culture. I mean, beautiful religious practices and beliefs, food traditions, the fucking food, my God. Like, it, it's just a mixing pot of different cultures now. But New Orleans benefits today because its foundation really lies on the backs of Africans who were stolen from their homeland and imported to Louisiana under French rule. African and African-American people, really, they weren't getting treated the best. And it was thought that punishments were necessary to keep the slaves in line. And also, again, this is during a time where white folk are terrified of the people that they are enslaving because of all these uprisings. And the relationships between the colonizers and the enslaved people in Louisiana, it was regulated by the Code Noir. And there would be penalties if slave owners did not provide their workers with food or care for them in their old age. Now, it was the responsibility of the slave owners to make sure that uh, the people that they owned were baptized and married in the Roman Catholic faith. During this time, you would have needed permission from the colony's superior council to free an enslaved person. And if you are a slave owner, you are not supposed to mistreat your slaves or children with them. Later on down the line, Delphine's crimes, it's said by scholars that it had occurred due to these uprisings and the murder of her uncle. And also there were rumors that her rage towards black people was fueled by the men in her family because they were obsessed with black women. And so I want to point out that during this time, it is said that there was a small amount of marriageable white women what the fuck does that mean like i don't know what it was looking like but the men they were infatuated with black women it's so fucking disgusting considering the fact that they were enslaving them and so i want to point out that delphine's uncle eugene theodore de macarty her cousin jane baptiste bartholomew de macarty and her daddy Louis Bartholomew de Macarty all openly had relationships with one or more free women of color. And there is a non-white branch of the Macarty family tree. So when Delphine was 14 years old, she married her first husband, Lopez E. Angelo. And matter of fact, she was barely 14 years old and he was 35. I really hate that for the child, but adult Delphine can kiss my black ass. I mean, Ramon is said to have died when their ship capsized in Havana and Delphine was pregnant and gave birth to her first daughter, Marie Borja. And you may know her also by Borquita. So now a widow, Delphine and her daughter, they return back to New Orleans. In 1808, Delphine marries her second husband, Jane Blanc, and they have four children together. Their names are Marie-Louise Pauline, Louise-Marie-Laure, Marie-Louise-Jane, and Jane-Pierre-Pauline-Blanc. And so Delphine ends up becoming a widow once again because Blanc dies. And this is sometime in 1816. A little over a decade later, Delphine became the wife of Leonard-Louis Nicholas Lalaurie. And he was much younger, so this, looked at, this was looked at as very weird behavior because it wasn't known for an older woman to marry a man who was younger. 
So the Lollery Mansion was acquired by the Lollery family in 1831 from a man named Edmund Sonnette Dufosset. And if you're wondering what the house looked like previously, you should Google the Sonnette House, and that's at 1133-35 Chartreuse. Or it's also similar to the Herman Grimm House, and that's at 820 St. Louis. So Delphine was throwing parties, you know, just like a mama. They was all rowdy and, and crazy. Um, I mean, they was having a good time. But between 1816 and 1834, Delphine enslaved 54 men, women, and children. Rumors began to circulate that the enslaved people were suffering from abuse at the Lollery Mansion. Now, 18 of the 54 were, were recorded as her matrimonial right after Jean Black's death. Cyrus, Matilda, Maria, Nelson, Roisin, and Samson were purchased in 1828. Lucinda was purchased in April of 1830. Abram, Amos, Frederick, James, Mary, Sally, and Patsy were purchased in 1831. Abram and Nelson were carters, and Sally was a seamstress. She made beautiful dresses, uh, shirts, trousers, and waistcoats. Patsy was 5 feet 10, and she is described uh, as having good moral character and a habit for running away. I mean, I love that for you, girl, because fuck them. Now, Diana and Mary Ann were purchased in 1832. Priscilla, who was described as lively, was purchased in 1833, and they were all African-American. Delphine was moving a little weird, though, in 19, or I'm sorry, 1828. So slave records show that some of the enslaved people that she owned prior to her third marriage, they began to move around. So Celestine and Louise, they were siblings. Suzette and her son, Edouard, and Nancy's, uh, Nancy had a mixed child named Ben, who was 16 years old. And a woman named Bonne had a 10-year-old daughter, Juliette. And they were sold to a family friend, then sold to another family friend before being sold back to Delphine. So there's speculation that this was done to try and hide some of the abuse that had been going on. And I would be remiss to not mention that Delphine was never accused of mistreating her slaves until after she married her third husband. Now, many believe that because their marriage was real shifty, and that because for a period of time he wasn't living in the mansion, that he had nothing to do with the abuse or the torture. But let's keep in mind that this is a man who refused to save the enslaved people inside the mansion as it burned. And he was more focused on his prized possessions. Also, he was in that mansion uh, for some time. They all were. So this abuse was known throughout this family. He is not to be removed from any accountability here. In 1828, Delphine gets caught for the first time and she's accused of mistreating the enslaved people who worked at her mansion. Authorities found these people who had been incarcerated within the mansion and they were bloody and were being kept alive with the bare necessities. This case went to criminal court and they absolved Delphine of any wrongdoing because no one could come forward as a witness and say that they had physically seen her strike one of her slaves. But check this out. The neighbors of the Lollaries, they were not really fucking with them, y'all. 
They basically said they were over this shit and if it happened again, she should be held accountable. I mean, this evil ass, this evil ass lady was pimping her slaves out and Delphine, she actually had a separate income because she hired out her slaves and made them bring their pay back to her and that's so fucked up. That's so fucked up. And there were letters that were written during this time and it described the fear that some of them had, you know, if they didn't bring enough money back to her. Many were confined to a cellar and shackled with iron chains and Delphine would abuse them whenever she felt like it. By 1832, Delphine and her husband, they're not getting along and they're they not really feeling it. And they filed for um, a petition for separation. But a man named Jane Bowes, he was only living a block or so away. And he got to spilling tea. In letters, he mentions a second time where Delphine is accused. And I quote, barbarous treatment of her slaves. So Delphine goes back to court. And this time she pays a fee for the case to be settled. And Jean Bowes, he wasn't the only one spilling the hot tea. A man named Armand Sillard, uh, he had some things to say too. And he was uh, the French consul to New Orleans. And he wrote to the French minister of foreign affairs. You know that this shit gotta be bad. And one of Delphine's relatives reported her to the authorities because she was just so fucking evil to these people man and Delphine goes back to court and her attorney helps her get off and I guess back in the day you could swear under oath that you've done no wrongdoing and if you did this you wouldn't have to provide proof of uh, innocence and it's so fucked up because obviously these civil codes did not yeah it didn't apply to people of color so reports in 1834, they show that the enslaved people in that mansion showed clear signs of abuse. They were said to have looked haggard and wretched. And I just, quick side note, Delphine was beating the dog shit out of her kids too. Two of the children from her previous marriage were her targets because these babies would try to feed the people suffering from starvation in the cellars. There is another story that goes over the account of a woman who was near the mansion. So this, there's an 18-year-old black girl, and it is said that she was chased through this mansion by Delphine, who was carrying a whip. Eventually, she ends up either on a balcony or the roof and falls to her death. I'm going to point out that this is stated in one of the retellings of this case, but the author does claim to have gotten this information from a reliable source when she visited New Orleans. Allegedly, the young girl's name may have been Leah or Leah, and she was combing Delphine's hair when she hit a snag that pissed Delphine off. Now, if this story has any truth to it, it's horrifying. And Delphine is that nappy-headed bitch. Like, this is just so... Mm -mm. But we have death records for some of the people who were under the Lollary family, and I'm going to give you their names and when they died. So... Celestine was about 33 years old when she died on June 20th, 1831. Edouard was 18 years old when he died 10 days later. Celestine, Juliette, and Edouard are the people who I mentioned were sold and moved around by the family before being returned back to Delphine. 
A woman named Nancy had two children named Ben and Nicholas. Nicholas was 26 when he died on September 30th, 1832. Rose was 19 when she died on September 24th, 1832. Ah, this is just so sad. Marianne was 24 when her funeral was held on February 17th, 1833. Maria was 20 years old when she died on November 22nd, 1833. Sally was 24 when she died on November 26th, 1833 and I'm not fucking done. So Bond was a Saint Dominican woman and was around 30 when she was when she was around 30 when she died and she was purchased by Delphine's father in 1816. Now it was during this sale that it was noted that she was a chronic runaway. Bond had four children and their names were Florence, Leontine, Juliette, and Jules. Florence was 10 years old when she died on February 16th, 1831. Leontine is Bond's youngest daughter, and she was born after Bond's enslavement to the LaLaurie family. Baby Leontine died when she was 22 months old. Bond herself died on February 7th, 1833, and her daughter Juliette died less than two weeks later. Bond's six-year-old son, Jules, died on May 29th, 1833. Like her fucking entire family, y'all. You cannot tell me that they succumbed to fevers or other ailments. And I know tropical fevers were taking people out. This is true. But you mean to tell me that fevers are taking out whole fucking families? But the LaLaurie family, they're holding these parties. They're elite socialites who never got sick themselves. They have fuck all that. Fuck all that. Like, maybe I'm just too tired to be recording right now, but this is just so infuriating. So now we have this fire that happened in 1834. And I'm going to give it to y'all per how it is described through newspapers and other accounts that are in record. So it was Thursday, April 10th, 1834. And that was when the Lollery Mansion went up in flames. And information has been also collected that's more accurate and it's from the local news the new orleans b and a judge who was present when the fire broke out his name is judge jacques francois Cononja, and he lived right across royal street so as the crowd outside the house began to grow judge Kanonji he he politely asked dr lalaurie to have the slaves uh, the slaves removed to a place of safety but Dr. LaLaurie wasn't having that. And he said, and I fucking quote, there are those who would be better employed if they would attend to their own affairs instead of officiously intermeddling with the concerns of other people. Judge Kanaja said, fuck all that noise. And he gave orders to break down the doors. A newspaper called The Courier reported that upon entry, they were met with an appalling sight as several wretched Negroes emerged from the house. Their bodies were covered in scars and loaded with chains. The oldest of them was 60 years old. By Friday, th these newspapers were spilling in all. The Beast French edition said the rescuers found seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated. They were suspended by the neck and their limbs were stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. They had been confined for several months in the situation from which they had thus been providentially rescued kept in existence to prolong their suffering and make them taste the most refined cruelty could inflict. The elderly woman declared to be the 
declared to the mayor that it was she who had set the fire with the intention of terminating the sufferings of herself and her companions or perishing in the flames. <sighs> this is beyond. So the editors of the Bee and the Courier, they went to the cabildo where the slaves had been taken. I want to point out that they were taken to protect them from the cruelty of their owner. This is in reports. Legitimate writings indicate that a man had a large hole in his head and was covered in scars and worms. Others looked similar to him. During the months of their captivity, they were fed porridge and given small amounts of water. So these people are rescued and taken to the Cabildo, where the crowd of witnesses grew to about 2,000. This crowd had all walks of life and people from different statuses, and they wanted justice and punishment for the person who was guilty. I want to point out that <laughs> them neighbors, they weren't fucking. They said Delphine. Like, they, it, they immediately looked at the LaLaurie family as being the guilty party of these monstrosities. And one, I want to point out that some of the enslaved people were found behind locked doors and bars in some areas of the mansion. One woman was wearing an iron collar that was very large and heavy and had chains on her feet. And to be moved from these cellars were fatal to some because they were weakened by the extreme injuries and malnourishment that they had suffered. So this story soon was international news. But the Lollaries, they escaped. Delphine lived the rest of her days in Paris. And Delphine's husband, Louis, he left Delphine and moved to Cuba. He died in 1863 and is buried in Havana. Delphine died in Paris on December 7th, 1842. And something that has really fucking disgusted me is that there is a possibility that after her death, her remains were brought to the historical St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. In the late... Uh, 1930s, a sexton uh, serving the cemetery named Eugene Bex, he discovered a cracked copper plate in alley four. The epitaph, when translated to English, read, Madame Lalaurie, born Marie Delphine McCarthy, died in Paris on December 7th, 1842. So let's go back a little bit. I keep mentioning the neighbors of the Lollerie family. I mean, they were fed the fuck up. They knew Delphine and her husband were cruel to their slaves. So they were pissed off when they found out that uh, the Lollerie family had successfully escaped. I mean, these people were pissed off that once again, Delphine would not um, be facing any punishment, getting off scotch-free. So... Upon finding out that they had escaped, a crowd forms around the mansion and they basically tore it, tore it all down. Anything that they could get their hands on was ruined. And I have mentioned Jean Bose previously. Uh, the crowd destroying the mansion on April 13th basically woke him up. He had also witnessed the fire and he goes on to write these letters describing the riots and was revulsed by Delphine, describing her behavior as cruel and barbarous. He described their escape as them running from the pursuit of justice and the rage of people who gathered by the thousands and desired to punish her in the fire because of her cruelty towards her slaves. He was also spilling some tea on Delphine's cousin, Celestine McCarty. So she was a cruel woman, no fucking better. And I mean, she had whipped two of the servants to death. 
and murdered all of her slaves to the point where she had no one left there to serve her. Bo said that if they had known where Celestine was renting property, they probably would have been deep up in that ass. So she is extremely fortunate. By April 14th, bodies had been dug up from the property and one of them belonged to a child. So there may be some truth to the story about that young girl, Leah, who was chased from the roof. I also mentioned before a man named Armand, and he previously wrote to the Minister of Foreign Affairs in August 20 of 1834. Now, he had been to the cabilda where the slaves had been taken for their safety, and he reported that he saw dislocated heads, legs torn by chains, and bodies streaked with blood from head to toe. Many of them were covered in maggots, and he was outraged when he found out that, once again, Delphine had escaped punishment. I have mentioned before that over time, every retelling of this case moves farther from what is accurate. Many books came out about the house on Royal Street, and I'm going to name a few. Uh, Harriet Martineau was an English writer who spent 10 days in New Orleans and interviewed witnesses. She wrote a two-volume memoir called Retrospect of Western Travel and talked about the young black girl who fell to her death. Frederica Bremer also visited New Orleans in 1852 and took accounts from the locals. She wrote a book called Homes of the New World and talked about Delphine's disgusting treatment of her slaves that caused her neighbors to basically not fuck with her no more. A man named George Washington Cable wrote a chapter called The Haunted House on Royal Street, and this was in his 1889 collection called Strange True Stories of Louisiana. Cable used informants by the names of J.W. Guthrie and Dora Richards Miller, and it is important to note that this is when the story begins to change. A man named Henry Cassianos and Lyle Saxon covered the story in a book called Fabulous New Orleans in 1928. Herbert Asbury and Lyle Saxon focused on, they really focused on the sadistic torture methods used by Delphine. A woman named Jean Delevingne also wrote a book as well, and this is where she really over-dramatizes the abuse, and she really wanted to take the fucking crown. Like, you would have thought her fucking rent was due. I mean, in her book, she says, and I quote, and also major trigger warning, the men who smashed the garret door saw powerful male slaves, stark naked, who were chained to the wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled off by the roots, Others had their joints skinned and they were festering. Great holes in their buttocks where the flesh had been sliced away. Their ears hanging by shreds and their lips sewn together. Their tongues drawn out and sewn to their chins. Several hands stitched to bellies. Legs pulled uh, joint from joint. Female slaves were there. And whew, I'm sorry, y'all. this is a lot. Um, where did I leave off? So yeah, the female slaves, they, they were there and their mouths and ears were crammed with ashes and chicken offal and bound tightly. Others had been smeared with honey and were a mass of black ants. Intestines were pulled out and knotted around naked waists. There were holes in skulls where a rough stick had been inserted to stir the brains. Some of the poor creatures were dead, some were unconscious, and a few were still breathing suffering agonies beyond any power to describe. What is so wild is that this is the information that I have come across in articles, and I mean, articles that were uh, written recently. 
And this information is provided in documentaries and on some of the ghost tours that go on in New Orleans. We have lost so much of the fucking truth because profit has come before education and honoring the enslaved people who died at the hands of the Lollary family. You know, as I close this out, I'm going to go ahead and mention just how fucked up this shit got. And there, there were people who were really trying to fix Delphine's reputation. So between 1920 and 1940, Corrine von Meinsberg and Miriam Dugan were headstrong about really trying to remove Delphine from this image of her being this evil monster. And during this time, different people began to pop up here and there, trying to justify her actions. November of 1924, a man named William Warrington gave a story to a journalist named John P. Coleman. Coleman prints this article titled, Historic New Orleans Mansions, the famous haunted house in Royal Street slash tragedy leads to its reputation. I'm sorry, that's, that's a long ass title and it's dumb. But in this article, Coleman writes about how Delphine's mother had been killed by her own slaves and that the crime and its circumstances so preyed upon the daughter that she brought her to Royal Street uh, uh, home, three suspects, a man, a woman, and a girl. Crazed with grief, she tortured these slaves in hope of making them confess. Other journalists were also influenced by Corrine von Meinsberg and Miriam Dugan, and the articles began to portray her as an innocent victim. And so now we see titles questioning if Delphine was a victim of a foul plot. A journalist named Minx Frost wrote an article called, um, he called it Delphine's Downfall, a smear campaign that resulted from a man named Monsieur Montreal. And this is a man who she had quarrel, uh, quarrels with. And Frost claimed Delphine was kind to her slaves and that the black girl who fell to her death actually slid, uh, slid down a curving banister while playing and fell three stories down to the marble flooring and died. August of 1936, Corrine uh, Mons-Meyenberg, she's still talking shit. She speaks to Charles Richard of the New Orleans Morning Tribune and claims that the reports of Delphine's cruelty are nothing but fiction. She's saying like, the rumors originated with the lady's husband and given momentum by a sperm suitor who lived next door. Like, they're, they're really trying hard. Uh, now, skip on over to 1941. A journalist named Bob Brown quoted Miriam and another family friend who claimed Delphine had been unjustly accused and mercilessly victimized. Get, get into some of this tea, y'all. It is said that the... Um, that the families of Miriam and Corrine, they claimed that George Washington Cable's story on Delphine was purely from what he had been told. And this was done without attempting to authenticate the facts. And they said that he was a novelist and not a historian. Allegedly, they started this rumor that Delphine refused to meet Cable because of his colored blood and that this is what motivated him to publish his story. But they started this rumor without doing the research because Cable was born in 1844, and this was a white man. So I want to take a moment to mention to y'all that Corrine von Meinsberg is married to Rathbone Du Bois, 
Miriam Dugan is married to Dr. Lawrence Richard Dubois. Rathbone and Lawrence are brothers, and they're the great-great-grandsons of Delphine. So, I mentioned previously that William Warrington gave John P. Coleman information about this article, right? Well, Warrington is a friend of the Du Bois and a director of a social service agency that was occupying the Lollary Mansion at the time. As we can see, her descendants ain't shit and they have come back to try and absolve her and correct their family name. But honestly, fuck them and fuck her and fuck whoever thinks making money off the enslavement and brutal torture of enslaved people should be uh, should bring profit without education. I mean, we have these official letters and death records, as well as the payment that Delphine made to an attorney. And this was during the time that she was in and out of the courts. And this payment was used to get her off. This woman is in criminal court for mistreating her slaves. And she was able to buy her way out. They set her free the first time because there were no eyewitnesses. And then she gets off a third time, then gets to escape to... Paris, live out the rest of her fucking days. I mean, all of these people that went missing, they were seemingly young and healthy. Y you can't tell me that Delphine and her spouse had nothing to do with this. And then also her fucked up ass cousin, Celestina, whatever the fuck her name is, like she killed everybody. And this is during a time where black people were extremely mistreated and hated by their oppressors. How can they try to absolve her of any guilt when she used to beat the shit out of her own children for trying to help the people that she was mistreating? You know, I'm gonna just close this out by saying, yeah, Delphine did that shit. And I hope that I have done this case some justice by bringing names to her victims, as many that I could find. Because I want y'all to keep in mind that there are more that we we just don't know about it. Um, but I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, I do have a review that I got. I've been getting a lot of five-star reviews, and I'm so appreciative of y'all. And a woman named Kitty Vixen, she said, I love it. And baby, I love you. So thank y'all. I do encourage y'all, if y'all listen and y'all like the podcast, please leave me a five-star rating and leave a comment. Don't be afraid to reach out to me um, because I will talk back and engage back with y'all. I'm going to go ahead and I'll plug all my social medias and my TikTok so y'all know where to find me. So you know you can find me on TikTok at blackgirl underscore true crime. My personal TikTok where I get the majority of my engagement is K, spelled K-A-Y, Simone93. But it's probably about good time that I start to shift these conversations over to my true crime uh, page. Now, my Facebook is Black Girl True Crime Podcast. Instagram is Black Girl underscore True Crime Podcast. And you can send case suggestions to Black Girl True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. And I want to thank y'all for tuning in again, for fucking with me and my bullshit. And I'm going to talk to y'all next week. Take care, y'all.